The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Test Your Knowledge of New and Emerging Therapies for Moderate to Severe Atopic Dermatitis, Latest Evidence and Clinical Potential. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash FXS860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, I'm Dr. Jonathan Solberg from the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences in Washington, D.C. Welcome to this educational activity on atopic dermatitis. This activity allows you to evaluate your awareness of new and emerging therapies for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. There will be five short question-based modules where you'll be asked to assess your knowledge of the most up-to-date clinical science. Then we will review the rationale for the correct answer for each of those questions. At the end of each section, you'll have another opportunity to answer the question to see if your selection has changed based on the information I have shared with you. Let's start with segment one, new insights in the pathogenesis of atopic dermatitis. The pathophysiology of atopic dermatitis turns out to be very complex, and we really have had an explosion of development and research into our understanding of the complex immune pathways of this disease. And this is not just a theoretical exercise, but is really translated into the development of multiple novel therapeutic agents that are showing a lot of promise or are already approved for the treatment of atopic dermatitis. And so first, when we look at just thinking about mechanisms of inflammation in the skin, two very crucial cytokines that are thought to be important are interleukins 13 and 4. And we have dupilumab as an already approved biologic agent targeting the signaling of interleukin-4 and interleukin-13. We also have two other interleukin-13 cytokine blockers, trilokinumab and lebrokizumab. We also know that the T helper 2 cells will release interleukin 31. Other immune cells can also release interleukin 31. That is thought to be very important for the signaling of itch. And we now have multiple agents under investigation right now that are targeting the signaling of interleukin 31. Other pathways to be investigated would be interleukin-5 blockade. Interleukin-5 plays an important role in eosinophilia. Eosinophils may play an important role in this disease. We've seen targeting of thymic stromal lymphopoietin and other so-called alarmins that are thought to be the bridge between barrier disruption and cutaneous inflammation. We're seeing now assets targeting the OX40, OX40 ligand pathway, which is thought to be very important from an immune tolerance standpoint. And we've even seen agents targeting immunoglobulin E. We don't think of immunoglobulin E as being the most important mediator of this disease, but it may play a role in some subsets of patients. And we have two different agents that have been studied and a number of other accessory pathways like interleukin-17, interleukin-23. Each of these pathways has been suggested to play a role in select subsets of atopic dermatitis patients. And we have several different medications that have been studied to block that. Really, the state of the art right now is in the interleukin-4, interleukin-13 blockade, the so-called T-helper-2 cytokine blockade. And we have dupilumab on the left in this slide, which you know indicated that binds to the interleukin-4 receptor alpha subunit. It forms a heterodimer and into two different receptors. And it's responsible for the signaling of both interleukin-4 and interleukin-13. Lebrokizumab and trilokinumab bind to the interleukin-13 cytokine, not the receptor, but the cytokine, and thereby inhibit the signaling of interleukin-13, and in theory are more targeted, so to speak, than dupilumab because they should not be blocking the signaling of interleukin-4. 
interleukin-31 blockade is being investigated now by nemolizumab, which binds to the interleukin-31 receptor alpha subunit and thereby blocks the signaling of these cytokines. Now, in terms of small molecules, there are a number of pathways that are also under investigation. Now, it's important to note that all those cytokines that I previously mentioned, interleukin-4, 13, 31, et cetera, and everything in that previous visualization was extracellular signals, extracellular cytokines or chemokines that are playing an important role, or even just receptors on the cell surface. But in order for those pathways to exert a biologic function within the cell type, there are intracellular pathways that have to be activated. And that's what the different small molecules are essentially going after. All of those cytokines that I previously mentioned will signal through the JAK-STAT pathway, the Janus kinase pathway, with slightly different selectivity, although a common theme uh, for all of those key cytokines is JAK-1 isomer being activated. We also have a variety of other pathways that are turned on, particularly with respect to itch, for example, substance P. We don't generally think of histamine as being a major driver of itch in atopic dermatitis, and certainly not through the classic histamine receptors that are important in urticaria, but there may be some role for the H4 receptors, although you know that is still early and under investigation. And there's also a potential role of phosphodiesterase E4 in particular, but really phosphodiesterases in general, as they play a role in regulating cyclic AMP, which is an important immunomodulator within cells. And many of these different pathways are not just turned on in T cells, but even in other cell types in the immune cascades as well. Now, I mentioned already that a lot of these key cytokines, interleukins 4, 13, 31, as well as thymic stromal lymphopoietin, interleukin 22, and interferon gamma, all have a common JAK subunit or JAK isomer that is involved in signal transduction, and that is JAK1. So the JAKs will have different pairs that are formed as the receptor heterodimers are formed and it brings together two different JAKs and there's different configurations. But JAK1 is a common subunit to all of these, which has made a potential target that could inhibit the signaling of all of these different cytokines and potentially have broader efficacy. Now, when we think about the different JAK inhibitors, each has a slightly different mechanism because it's not just a matter of blocking JAK, right? It's about which subunits of JAK one is going to block, and that's going to have differential function. So we have several different assets that have been studied that are more selective for the targeting of JAK one in particular, baricitinib, abricitinib, and upadacitinib. In the case of baricitinib, there's also a little bit more targeting of JAK2 as well. And there's another asset, ASN002, which blocks JAK1 and JAK2, but is broader and blocks as well JAK3 and TIK2. And there are many other agents. Certainly, we are familiar with tofacitinib as a more pan-JAK inhibitor and one that covers more JAK3 as well. Now, let's move on to segment two. And this is efficacy of advanced therapies in development for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. And now we're going to get into some of the cool new data that are available for these different emerging agents. So lebrikizumab, just to refresh your memory, is a biologic and monoclonal antibody that inhibits signaling of interleukin-13 
by binding to that cytokine. These are results from a phase 2b double-blind randomized placebo-controlled study testing three different doses of lebrachizumab. And what was observed was that there was a dose-dependent increase in terms of clinical improvements, reductions of the eczema area and severity index with the lebrachizumab 250 milligram every other week dosing showed the highest efficacy for the average change in easy scores, we don't see a major difference between leverkizumab every two weeks versus every four weeks. But when you go to some of the deeper endpoints, like easy 75, easy 90, et cetera, deeper responses for itch, that's really where you see the greater differentiation of that higher dose. And really across all endpoints, that highest dose hitting all significant endpoints. Now, trelokinumab is another monoclonal antibody that binds interleukin-13. This one is actually a little bit further along in its clinical development because we now have readouts from multiple phase three studies. It is actually approved already in Germany and awaiting approval in the United States for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. Data from the extra one and extra two studies, these are identically designed monotherapy, randomized double-blind placebo-controlled studies, no background TCS or TCI used, and testing one dose of trelokinumab which is 300 milligrams every other week compared to placebo. And what you can appreciate is that you have the IgA score of clear or almost clear, which is the FDA's preferred regulatory endpoint. And we see that there is a significant improvement in IgA responses for trelokinumab compared to placebo in both studies. What is also notable is that there's really no evidence of any plateau in response, suggesting that with continued use, there would be even more improvements. And we've seen across multiple postdoc studies that that is in fact the case. Case. When we look at EZ75, which is a little bit less rigorous of an endpoint, we do see a plateau a little bit earlier in extra one, although in extra two, it's debatable whether or not that's really a plateau, and we do see higher responses achieved. When we particularly look at extra three, which is more real world in the sense that it allows for background topical corticosteroids or in select scenarios, calcineurin inhibitors, what we see is a substantial boost in efficacy rates for both IgA clear, almost clear, and easy 75 responses with the addition of TCS. When we look at the longer-term data from recent open-label extension data, the EXTEND study, what we see is very nice overall flat curves for EZ75 and IgA clear, almost clear, at week 56, which really indicates that overall there is nice durability of response. Now let's switch gears and talk about nemolizumab. This is a little bit further behind in development in the sense that we have several different dosing strategies that are tested. This is being developed in different ways in different regions of the world. In Japan, what was examined is a little bit different than what was done in the US and the rest of the world. Now, longer term extension of an initial phase two study examining a weight-based dosing strategy. In the initial study, which was published in New England Journal, 0.5 milligram per kilogram of nemolizumab was the most effective dose, one of the middle doses that was tested. And with the longer term follow-up data that were published in Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, it was shown that there's continued ongoing responses out to week 54. Now, of note in that particular study, there was no imputation done for missing data. There are some other potential limitations of the analysis, but we also have a more robust and perhaps more rigorous statistically designed study, which is a phase 2b, looking at not a weight-based dosing, but more fixed doses of nemolizumab 10, 30, or 90 milligrams compared to placebo. 
And what was found was that that middle dose nemalizumab, 30 milligrams, showed the most efficacy in terms of itch reductions, in terms of improvements of the easy score over time. And I think this is an important point because you'll sometimes hear people say that nemalizumab only seems to work on itch. And while it does work on itch, this study shows that when used in combination with topical corticosteroids, that in fact, there are significant and dramatic reductions in easy scores over time. When we look at other endpoints, we see statistically significant reductions for nemalizumab in terms of itch improvements. This is from a Japanese study that looked at a different dosing regimen of nemalizumab at 60 milligram dose. And that higher dose may actually be a little bit less effective than the 30 milligram dose studied in the previous study. But we see improvements across several different endpoints, even with this perhaps less effective dose. Now let's switch gears to the small molecule realm, and we're going to go into data for abrocitinib. This was studied in many phase three studies that we have readouts for now, Jade Mono 1, Mono 2. These are the flagship monotherapy studies looking at adults with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. This study included adolescence, which is a notable difference from some of the other studies that we've already discussed, or even studies of dupilumab, where the initial studies were only in adults. This was done in adults and adolescents. We see that in both Jade Mono 1 and Jade Mono 2. For both doses of abrocitinib, the 100 milligram and the 200 milligrams, there is a significant improvement in terms of IgA responses and peak paritis numeric rating scale responses as well for this. And really some profound efficacy demonstrated here, particularly with that 200 milligram dose. You might speculate that the 200 milligram dose might even be more effective than our existing or approved biologic agent, dupilumab. But of course, you have to be careful about comparing between studies we actually have data from the Jade Compare study, which is a head-to-head study comparing abrocitinib both doses against dupilumab. And what was found was that the abrocitinib 200 milligram dose was in fact more effective than dupilumab, certainly at the earlier time points, as early as week two, you can see differences, but numerically you can appreciate that there's a clear separation in the 200 milligram dose appears to be more effective at week 12 and week 16 as well. And similar results were observed for IgA responses, for EZ75 responses, for NRS itch responses as well. And we're seeing both early and robust responses later on as well. What about patients who, you know, have already had an inadequate response to dupilumab? And these are data from the Jade Compare study, which was the head-to-head comparison. Some of the non-responders to dupilumab in those 16 weeks, they underwent a four-week washout period and then were randomized to get either Abro 200 or 100 the results of abrocitinib in those patients who had that prior dupilumab non-response. And what we see is really dramatic efficacy observed for both doses, but particularly more so with the highest dose, the 200 milligrams, suggesting that this may be a very useful agent in patients who've already failed dupilumab. When we look at the adolescent patients in particular, the Jade teen study, here we also see significant improvements for both doses of abrocitinib compared to placebo, maybe a little bit less of a differentiation between the 100 milligram and 200 milligram doses of abrocitinib, but both doses showing significant improvements compared to placebo in the teenagers. Now, one of the interesting things, you know, with any medication is we know patients don't necessarily want to be on them forever and patients would like to potentially take a break or 
use lower doses wherever possible. And so these are data from a very fascinating study design, the Jade Regimen Study. And everyone in this study was given an open-label induction period of abracitinib, the highest dose, the 200 milligrams every day, no topical steroids used. If they were responders by IgA and EZ75 response, they were then re-randomized to a 40-week maintenance period where they would get either placebo, abracitinib, 100 milligrams as a maintenance dose, or 200 milligrams as that full dose in an ongoing fashion. Within about a month, most patients who went on to the placebo afterwards did experience a protocol-defined flare. The patients who were on a lower maintenance dose, many of them were able to maintain that response for months before experiencing a protocol-defined flare. And of course, the patients who had the highest dose continuously had the lowest chances of a protocol-defined flare data for baricitinib. This is data from the flagship monotherapy studies, Breeze AD1 and AD2. These were international studies that examined three different doses of baricitinib, one, two, and four milligrams. We see a dose-dependent increase in efficacy with the four milligram dose achieving the most benefit for IgA responses, whether with or without TCS rescue being addressed in the statistical analyses. When we look at long-term efficacy, one thing is, you know, just to note from the baricitinib data on the previous slide, you know, not every patient is going to have this super response, this deep clearance of the skin. But when they are responders and do quite well and they get down to, you know, being mild or clear, almost clear, and we continue them on therapy in the Breeze AD3 study, what we see is overall a nice durability of response for EZ75 and the IgA improvements, as well as multiple patients reported outcomes for both the four milligram and the two milligram dose. When we look at some other data from the Breeze 85 study, so this is a North American study that did not look at the four milligram dose, but did look at the one milligram and the two milligram dose, and also found significant improvements for baricitinib, particularly at the two milligram dose compared to the placebo, as well as rapid itch reductions and rapid improvements in pain severity, as well as a number of other patient report outcomes. There are also another study, which is very interesting, is really trying to understand who are the super responders or who will be the super responders to baricitinib, two milligram dose. And what was observed was two major factors. One is for those patients who have body surface area of 10 to 50%, which would be arguably a more moderate patient population, they are the patients who get the super response, those deeper responses for easy 75s and IgA clear, almost clear. The patients who are above 50% BSA, markedly lower rates achieving these deeper responses. In addition to that, another factor that was seen was that those who respond early on within the first four weeks or eight weeks with respect to itch and some other early clinical endpoints were more likely to achieve this deeper clearance by week 16. Now let's talk about upadacitinib. And here we have data from the flagship Measure Up MUN, Measure Up 2 studies. These are adult monotherapy studies. Actually, this is adult and adolescents, similar to abracitinib, but monotherapy, no background TCS. And what we see is a dose-dependent increase in improvements for easy 75 and IgA scores in both studies, Measure Up 1 and Measure Up 2, with the 30 milligram dose showing slightly better efficacy than the 30 milligram, both being dramatically better than placebo. And really major 
major, major reductions in patient-reported impact of atopic dermatitis, improvements of sleep, daily activities, emotional state, et cetera, and many other post-hoc analyses showing good efficacy. From the AD-UP study, which allowed for background TCS, we also see dramatic improvements in EZ75, IGA responses, many other endpoints compared to placebo plus TCS. Mm-hmm. This drug can be used with or without TCS. Very rapid improvements, but very robust improvements and arguably sets the bar in terms of efficacy in the field right now, at least on paper. Now we have also heads-up study, which allows for head-to-head comparison of dupilumab FDA-approved dose versus the higher dose of upadacitinib, the 30 milligram dose. And what was seen was that upadacitinib was statistically more effective for essentially all endpoints, but where you really see the major difference and where upadacitinib shines above and beyond dupilumab is in those deeper endpoints like easy 90 and easy 100 rates in clearance where 28% of patients are 100% clear on upadacitinib compared to less than 10% for dupilumab also see significant improvements in terms of itch. Now let's move to segment three, and this is the safety of advanced therapies and development for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. First, let's address lebrakizumab from their phase 2b study. And what we see overall is that very clean with respect to safety, very similar peering safety profile to dupilumab. The main one that comes up here is conjunctivitis, conceptually similar to dupilumab, although the rates of conjunctivitis are markedly lower for lebrakizumab than what were observed in the clinical trials for dupilumab. And that is something that we're going to need to monitor in the real world to see if in fact there is less conjunctivitis with lebrakizumab compared to dupilumab. We also have long-term safety data for trilokinumab, again, interleukin-13 blocker similar to lebrakizumab. And here also very low rates of serious adverse events. And the main one here as well would be conjunctivitis. Also, with lower rates of conjunctivitis observed in this study compared to the dupilumab studies. Again, debatable though, is it truly lower or not? We'll need to see that in the real world. For nemolizumab, also overall very clean with respect to safety, no major safety signals of concern. The big one here was that some patients did have atopic dermatitis flares, which we think may be just more of, you know, some patients didn't have the efficacy, especially in the, you know, placebo arms, but there may be a signal of asthma exacerbation here. This is something that is still under active investigation, and we'll have to see from the phase three studies if that is a real safety concern or not. When looking at abrocitinib, we now have data presented for an integrated safety analysis across multiple studies, the phase two study and multiple phase three clinical trials as well. And overall, there is an increase in adverse events and serious adverse events with abrocitinib. Although generally speaking, while tolerated, we see higher rates of serious infections. We see higher rates of herpes zosters, herpes simplex, which seems to be a class-wide effect and maybe a little bit of a signal as well for eczema repeticum. And overall lab values are relatively stable and unchanged, although there are some outliers where some patients do get laboratory anomalies. And certainly we will see in the FDA labeling or labeling around the world requirements for lab monitoring with not just abrocitinib, but really the whole class of JAK inhibitors. When we look at baricitinib, we also have data for integrated safety analysis, and we see a similar signal potentially for herpes simplex, herpes zoster in a dose-dependent fashion. There's a little bit of a signal potentially for serious infections, although unclear if that's really a signal related to baricitinib. 
and some rare events that come up for other JAK inhibitors in terms of potentially venous thrombosis and potentially non-melanoma skin cancer as well. So this is something that will need more real-world pharmacovigilance data to better understand these signals. Now, for upadacitinib, we also have an integrated safety analysis. Here we only have through week 16, though. We don't have longer-term data where we see probably the strongest signal for upadacitinib is particularly for acne, which is a stronger signal observed than with other JAK inhibitors. We do see a little bit of a signal as well for oral herpes. So this is something that we have to see how this truly differentiates on safety from the other JAK inhibitors, but there may be differential profile of adverse events across the different drugs in the class of JAK inhibitors. Now, for our segment four, we'll discuss incorporating new therapies into treatment plans for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. And we first, first for background, need to think about how should we possibly assess in clinical practice those patients who have moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. And there are many different tools that are validated and provide rich information, though they're not always used. In fact, they're often not used in clinical practice because they may be a bit too cumbersome. Eczema area and severity index is the preferred endpoint for clinical trials by international consensus. The SCORAD is used very commonly in Europe and incorporated into the guidelines. PO Scorad is a patient-reported analog of the Scorad. Patient-reported outcomes like POEM, DLQI, Paritis Numeric Rating Scale of Itch, and validated IGA, these have been validated, and these are all things that are much more feasible for use in clinical practice, and I would strongly encourage at least incorporating one or two of these into clinical practice. It will help you better identify which patients really are poorly controlled and have more severe disease. The Harmonizing Outcome Measures in Eczema Group or Home Group has developed a core outcome set to look at clinical signs, patient-reported symptoms, long-term control, and quality of life. One of the domains that has recently been explored is long-term control, which has been changed to just disease control because these tools, the RECAP and the ADCT, they don't really measure long-term control. They're assessing control over a one-week recall period, but these are also tools that you can use in clinical practice. All of our guidelines used in Europe and the U.S. recommend a step-up approach or step-care approach to atopic derm where you know we start with more conservative therapy and advance to more aggressive therapy with each subsequent you know, failure of conservative approaches. When we think about where these different agents may belong, the systemics and biologic therapy is really going to fit more into that moderate severe therapy rung and really more for that long-term disease control management of the disease. Now, therapies in development for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. We have lebrikizumab, we've talked about phase three trials for adolescents and adults, nemalizumab, which is being studied now in adolescents and even younger children. And we also have a variety of other agents now that are being explored for atopic dermatitis. For segment five, prevention strategies to minimize the infection risk associated with biologics and targeted immunomodulators. You know, we have to recognize that the biologics have revolutionized really treatment of many inflammatory diseases, but certainly in atopic dermatitis already. We do have to think about, you know, despite their benefit, there may be side effects, particularly with the JAK inhibitors. There may be, you know, increased risk of different types of infections. And so we have to be careful about that and really monitor patients appropriately you know, when we think about certainly also the more conventional agents like cyclospore and amethotrexate, that is certainly the case as well. You know, in terms of the small molecules, they tend to have more infection risk than the biologics. They also tend to be much faster in their action and maybe even more effective, but may have more off-target effects in terms of impacting, you know, hematologic endpoints, liver, kidneys, et cetera. 
and some of the different safety concerns that come up, particularly herpes virus infections, which is an issue that comes up across the class of JAK inhibitors. When we think about immunization, particularly for herpes zoster, and now, of course, in the COVID era, we're always thinking about vaccines. You know, there is the potential to impact and lessen vaccine efficacy. And so with these immunomodulators, there's also a possible safety concern with the interaction of giving live vaccines with these immunomodulators. So these are issues that we definitely want to be cognizant of. We have less concerns with killed vaccines for dupilumab, although there's still uncertainty regarding live vaccines because it just wasn't studied. This activity is accredited by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash FXS860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer.